LGBTQ plus history month. Hello everyone and welcome to a very special edition of Brainscape in collaboration with the GU LGBTQ plus society. In this episode, we'll be exploring how LGBTQ plus people have been treated within psychology in the past and how modern psychological practices and theories can be more inclusive and useful to the queer community. After a quick game of queer quiz story, you will hear our first ever podcast relay with a variety of insightful one-on-one conversation between GU PsychSoc and LGBTQ plus members. We will be discussing disability and the queer community, mental health services for LGBTQ plus people, representations and exclusion of trans people in psychology, how attraction studies exclude LGB people, the pathologization of asexuality, and the positive psychology of the queer joy movement. A quick content warning. The discussions mention discrimination, transphobia, lesbophobia, biphobia, queerphobia, misogyny, blackface, Nazi mentions, ableism, mental health issues and suicide. We will also be using lots of different terminology. So go to the external website for definitions of various terms mentioned in the, in the conversations. Okay, now let's go to Amelia, Teresa, Paul, Emily and Ellie for Queer Quiz Story. Welcome to the podcast quiz, everyone. We have lots of wonderful contestants here with us today. I am Amelia Hilton, your host, and my pronouns are she, her. Contestant number one is... Hi, I'm Ellie. My pronouns are she, her, or they, them. Uh, Contestant number two is... Hi, I'm Emily. My pronouns are she, her. Contestant number three is... Um, my name's Paul and my pronouns are he, him. And our final contestant is... Hi, I'm Teresa and my pronouns are she, her. We are going to do a whistle-stop tour of psychology and LGBTQ+, and different gender and sexual identity facts, so I hope you're all ready. Question number one. Dun, dun. Dun, dun. Until which year was homosexuality classified as a mental illness in the DSM? I have no idea, but I'll guess 1986. Mm-mm. I'm going to guess 1978. I think it was probably, I, don't, I want to say it was later, like the 1990s. Nope, incorrect. Can I guess 1973? Correct. One point to Emily. The exact right date. Question two. Dun, dun. Dun, dun. Was female homosexuality ever criminalised in England? Emily. No. Correct. It was classified as a mental disorder or a sexual deviation in psychological fields, but it was never criminalised. Question three. Dun, dun. Dun, dun. When was the first law passed that targeted homosexuality for persecution in the UK? 1541. You're very close, but not correct, I'm afraid. 1542. It's not not quite that close. Oh. (laughs) 1567. Incorrect. Ellie, last chance. 1535. Oh, so I might give you a point for that. It's 1533. Uh, And it was named the Buggery Act and was passed by (laughs) Henry VIII. And it meant that male homosexuality was punishable by death. Lovely. Yeah. Thanks, Henry. (laughs) Thanks Henry. Thanks so much, Henry. (laughs) Question four. Dun, dun. Dun, dun. Michael Dillon published... Self, a study in endocrinology, which has been described as an autobiography of the first transgender man to undergo phalloplasty surgery, which is the construction or reconstruction of the penis. In which decade was this book published? Like 70s? Incorrect, before. Like 1750? 
That's that's a bit early. Bit early. Okay. Was it the 1850s? Incorrect. Later than that. Oh. Theresa was closest. Paul, last chance. Um, 50s. I I'm gonna give you the point for that. It was 1946, so almost the 50s. Uh, and there's a lovely quote from this book that I really enjoyed, which was, "Where the mind cannot be made to fit the body, the body should be made to fit the mind." Uh, I got that information from the British Library. They have a fantastic um, page on different uh, collections of books and laws from their archives. I would highly recommend checking out. Okay, question five. Dun, dun. Dun, dun. In 1951, Roberta Cowell was the first transgender woman to undergo vaginoplasty surgery in the UK. She had two very action-packed jobs. Can you guess what they are? Think kind of 1950s wartime jobs, maybe. Was one of her jobs secretary? Incorrect. A pilot? Yes, she was a Spitfire pilot in World War Two. That's so, That's so cool. <laughs> but she's also got, she also had another very, very cool job also involving transport a race car driver yeah no. <laughs> yeah yeah she was a racing car driver so yeah world war ii spitfire pilot and racing car driver so she was pretty badass question six dun 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 this is a long long preamble so the report of the departmental committee on homosexual offenses better known as the wolfenden report was published in 1957. 1957. <laughs> it reported the state should focus on public displays of homosexuality rather than focusing on persecuting people's private lives. In England, Wales and the Republic of Ireland, the recommendations were implemented 10 years after this was published, so in the late 60s. But when did Scotland and Northern Ireland implement the recommendations? I want to say it was earlier, like... 1960? Incorrect. It was it was after. Oh, right, okay. Uh, I would say like 1972, so like even later. Incorrect, later. 1979. Very nearly. Emily? 1983. So Scotland passed it in 1980, and Northern Ireland passed it in 1981 which I thought I was quite shocked by how much later um, these recommendations were considered in law so that's more than 10 years well more than 20 years after the report was published and more than 10 years after other countries within the UK question seven dun 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 Polari is a secret language or form of slang which was adopted by some gay subcultures from 1900 until around the 1970s. It has words originating from Roma communities, Italian, Cockney and other sources. Kenneth Williams famously included Polari in his radio show Round the Horn, which led to it entering some straight middle class vocabularies. Can you translate some of these phrases? So anyone who is able to translate any of them will get a point for each. The first one is Zeus Urea. Shut your mouth. Incorrect. I can put it in context if we want. Oh, before the wedding, you need to make sure that you Zeus Urea. I don't know why, but clean your shoes. (laughs) (laughs) Incorrect. Zeus urea is to style or tart up your hair. So urea is your hair, and then Zeus is kind of do up, tart up. Zeus it up. Zeus, yeah, very similar. <laughs> yeah, Zeus it up. It might have been my pronunciation. Of the, I haven't <laughs> heard many people speaking Polari, so I apologise to anyone who is fluent. The next one is How Bonner Tavada, your dolly old eek again. How bonner tomorrow, your dolly old eek again. <laughs> um, let me give it. It's a greeting, so you'd say it to you'd say it to someone you hadn't seen in a long time, I guess. How bonner tomorrow, your dolly old eek again. Go on, Paul. Oh wait, 
it went away, but I'm just going to try and guess. Um, how, well, I don't know. How have you been? Incorrect. How good it is to see your face again. Yeah. Well done. You got oh. it. Nice to see your pretty face again. So your dolly oldie oh. is your pretty face. And then Bonitavada is how, how good to see. And then finally, my absolute favourite is farting crackers. Can anyone guess what farting crackers are? Can we get it in context? I've put your farting crackers out to dry on the clothes rack. Your underwear? Incorrect. Your coat? Incorrect. It's worn on the lower half of the body. Is it your trousers? It is indeed. (laughs) Farting crackers are trousers. And I just think that's so joyful. <laughs> Polari sounds like the modern language we should have been taught in school. Oh, 100%. <laughs> I wonder if there was like a like a Scots dialect or like whether there was dialects around the UK. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, I didn't see anything about that, but if I find it, listeners, I will add that link into the description. Uh, question eight. Dun, dun. Dun, dun. A Florida Enchantment by Sidney Drew was the first US motion picture to include bisexual characters, both men and women. However, under the Hayes Code censorship laws, the word bisexual could not be mentioned during the film. So this is a um, kind of critical interpretation has said that they think it's fairly obvious the characters were bisexual. When was the film made is the question. The very first US motion picture to include bisexual characters. When was it made? The 1990s? Uh, quite a lot earlier than that, actually. 1950s? Earlier. Oh. Um, I was going to say 1930s. Before. <laughs> 1920s. <laughs> Incorrect. It was actually in 1914. In one of the, mm. It wouldn't have been mm-hmm. a talkie. It was a silent film. Um, although I did do a tiny bit of research into the film and a content warning for people, even though the movie has been celebrated for being progressive in the way it includes bisexual, gay and lesbian and transgender themes, there is quite a lot of blackface included. So be aware if you choose to watch it. Okay, question nine. Dun, 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 dun. When was the first study including empirical data on asexual people published? Sometime in the 1900s. Was it like 1980s? Yeah, well done. I'm going to give you give you that. It was 1983 and it was a study looking at the relationship between sexual orientation and mental health. This study used a variant of the Kinsey's model, which is a commonly used Uh, kind of sexuality measurement within psychology and it scored participants according to sexual behavior and their desire for it the website that I was looking into also states which I thought was interesting um, that only New York has legislation which explicitly mentions asexuality um, and that is within the 2002 sexual orientation non-discrimination act but according to a website Uh, it was called asexuality archive there are no other forms of legislation anywhere in the world that explicitly include asexual people okay our final question question 10 is dun 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 when was the rainbow flag first used as a symbol of lgbtq plus pride and you get a bonus point for guessing the number of colors in this very first version of the flag The original flag had eight colours and I believe it was first used in the early 70s. It was the 70s, but not the early 70s. So I'll give you the point for the eight colours. I'm going to go with the late 70s. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It was 1978. Um, And it was designed by Gilbert Baker, who was an openly gay man and a drag queen. He later said he was asked by a very famous Harvey Milk to create a symbol of pride for the gay community. And Baker saw flags as the most powerful symbol of pride. You know, they're used for national pride for countries and organisations. So that's why 
they that's why he chose the flag um and later in an interview i thought this was another very uh lovely quote our job as gay people was to come out to be visible to live in the truth as i say to get out of the lie a flag really fit that mission because that's a way of proclaiming your visibility or saying this is who i am and originally as emily correctly said uh the flag included eight colors each colour had its own meaning designated to different aspects of life. So hot pink was for sex, red was for life, orange was for healing, yellow was for sunlight, green was for nature, turquoise was for art, indigo was for harmony, and violet was for spirit. So that concludes our quiz. Did people remember their scores? Because I was not keeping track. <laughs> No, <laughs> people didn't remember. Well, that's good because that means we're all winners. <laughs> no one remembered their scores. The real, the real winner is pride. Thank you so much for taking part in this quiz. I hope you all enjoyed it and learnt something new. But does anyone have any last words before we sign off for the quiz? I wish everyone could see our dances in between the rounds. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Amelia, for your wonderful sound effects. They really made it. Now, for the listeners at home, my name is Ellie. My pronouns are she, her, or they, them. And this is... I'm Ali, and my pronouns are she, her. And we're going to be talking about uh, queerness and being disabled. Which is very exciting. And it's actually something that we could talk about for literally forever. Um, but we're aware that we don't have forever. Um, and so we have picked just three topics that we're going to dive into in the next five minutes with you guys. Um, so we're going to look at the desexualization of disabled people, gender, and how this fits in with the conversation about disability and queerness, and finishing with how psychology can and should approach the intersection of LGBTQ plus and disability. Like, probably the desexualization of the disabled community, that is the historical presumption mm -hmm. that um, disabled people don't necessarily, are not, are not necessarily interested in sex or shouldn't necessarily be interested in sex um, is one of the reasons why this intersection hasn't really historically been looked at so much before, right? Yeah, and it's really it's really tricky because you have um, that problem that's imposed on the disabled community of like this desexualization is imposed on them, and then simultaneously with the queer community, you have this hypersexualization that's imposed on them and is a real problem for the queer community. And those things just feel so um, so opposite to each other that to be someone in the middle of that and trying to balance these two identities, like that's hard from an internal point of view, but also society and therefore psychological research etc doesn't really see that as an area that needs to be looked into and you were talking um when we chatted before this Ellie you were telling me about a really interesting study that really highlights the way that disabled people are seen only through the lens of heterosexuality and also through this desexualized lens that was really interesting yeah so I come to this with perspective of like neurodiversity predominantly and it's really interesting because historically autistic people where most research has been done in between at the intersection of being LGBT and disabled. Um, historically, autistic people have been viewed as or presumed to be like asexual or that um, if they did have sexuality, that it was a problematic issue for them. But re more recently, this has been consistently overturned by the literature and autistic people aren't not interested in relationships and they're not not capable of relationships in fact in some samples um showed that 17 percent to 73 percent of autistic people in those samples um were in a romantic relationship or living with a partner but they didn't necessarily see being single uh, perceive that as being negative either um and they just cited a number of reasons why other than their autism for not being in a relationship. What also this study showed was that there was higher rates of um, non-heterosexual attraction in there. So it's quite possible that historical views of autistic relationships and romance and sexuality 
have kind of presumed that if they weren't interested in heterosexual relationships, that they weren't interested in relationships at all, when actually they might have been interested in other types of relationships. And that's just not been accounted for necessarily in the past. I think that's so interesting, the way that psychology's problems in terms of their conceptualization of and consideration of the LGBTQ plus community and like the kind of compulsive heterosexuality that is so often seen in the research the way that that is not just affecting research to do with queer people but it infiltrates every other area of research and especially something like research into disability where I believe the statistics are that one in three queer people are disabled or live with a long-term health condition which is a huge amount of the queer community and so you can totally see how like the homophobia from this end and the ableism from the other end kind of like lead to this research being incredibly historically incredibly problematic and still to this day just not quite where it should be. But it's really important that we do talk about um, LGBTQ plus identities within the disabled community because otherwise we're not serving either community adequately right? Yeah completely and this is one of the things that's really interesting is you know we know that disabled people face these additional barriers we know that LGBTQ plus people face these additional barriers but we just don't know enough about what it means to experience both of those identities so for example we know that three in 10 disabled people who are aged 16 to 24 years old which is 29% of them are not in education training or work which is obviously a huge problem and while there isn't a comparative statistic for LGBTQ plus people Stonewall did an amazing report which we can um, link in the description of this it was called shut out which really says all you need to know about um, queer experiences of trying to find work and be in employment but there is literally no research about the employment experiences of people who are both disabled and queer um, and then this is the same story for so many other things such as loneliness and mental health problems and yeah as you said Ellie it means that neither community is properly being served um, by the field of psychology yeah, and I suppose it has a really big impact on when we're talking about healthcare, if you're always presuming one way or the other, especially within the gender diverse community, if you're gender diverse and uh, identify one way and another way or being presumed to be uh, another way, then that can have a really big impact. Ellie, you're completely right. You've absolutely hit the nail on the head that for queer people, the healthcare system doesn't work and obviously this is even more problematic if you're disabled and therefore even more reliant on the healthcare system and experiencing the ableism within the healthcare system too um, and this is actually something that um, to wrap up this very lovely conversation that we could take forever um, and probably will continue chatting about after this that's actually what I'm about to talk to Cameron about. And now I'm going to be talking to the lovely Cameron, who is a fourth year psychology student um, and he also works as a mental health support worker. And we're going to be talking about um, why the mental health services don't always work for LGBTQ plus people. Um, so, Cameron, do you want to start us off by talking a little bit about um, the Stonewall Health Report, which we talked about a little bit before? And I feel like it gives quite a nice overview of why why this is a super important thing to be talking about? Yeah, so it was this um, survey that Stonewall conducted um, in, as like part of the government. I think it was 5,000 um, people, uh, LGBTQ plus people across the UK. And it was a general health one, but they had like sections for mental health. And some of the some of the stats are just like, just mind blowing. Um, but in, in a weird way, not. It's kind of hard to explain that. Like they're shocking, but is it surprising? I guess probably not. And so just like as an example, so 52% um, of LGBTQ um, plus individuals experience depression, uh, depression 61% experience anxiety, 10% have an addiction, and 12% have an eating disorder. Um, and beyond more kind of diagnostic roles, because obviously like diagnostic, there's a lot of critiques about that. Half um, in the last year have thought about taking their own life. And this one really stuck with me. Just, I don't know if the way they worded it, but it was 47% of LGBTQ plus people have thought that their life wasn't worth living um, and you know we, we consider intersectionality obviously you uh, helped Ellie a lot with the diversity and inclusion um, you know these stats are you know just as not just worse even worse for you know BAME and disabled LGBTQ 
LGBT, sorry, I can't pronounce it, LGBTQ um, plus individuals. And, you know, there's there's lots of reasons why this could be. Obviously, there's a kind of more obvious ones like minority stress, which we'll talk about. But um, one of the things that Stonewall um, at the end, they sort of did a kind of um, next steps or what they'd like to see in the future. And they talked a lot about curriculums in terms of healthcare um, workers like um, doctors and nurses and stuff. And that's an area that I'm really interested in part of my own dissertation. Um, but I think the one thing that they touched on, which I really like, they said it's just not a priority. Um, and it's true, you know, there's, there's these stats, are, they're shocking and they're not, you know, it's, it's happening and we all know somebody is going to be experiencing these things, but it's just not in terms of, you know, National Health Service, government, health, social care, it's just not a priority. And that's the problem that it should be made a priority. And in terms of mental health services, okay, there is things like, um, you know, gender clinics and stuff. But in general, a lot of the models that we have for mental health are designed for that one population. And it's a classic story. It's the white middle-class person, you know, it's not for, um, yeah, it's, it's not for, it's not, it's not that these people in themselves, like our, our challenges at the systems, yeah, it's not built for them. It's, I think that's so interesting what you were saying about like these statistics are like shocking, but they're also not shocking. Cause I also had that feeling when I was reading it of like, I almost had to like rethink of just how mm. unbelievable they were because you know sometimes you see statistics and you're like oh my gosh that is unbelievable but these felt sadly very believable like I felt like yeah. when I was reading them I was like this this very much feels like the experiences of my peers like this this feels like they are completely true which is really um sad and what you were saying about it not being a priority um I read something this morning that I'm sure we can like share in the description of this podcast that was saying that um it was a paper that was saying that like whilst generally like attitudes etc towards queer people have like got better in society like they absolutely haven't in healthcare and there seems to be a perception of like within healthcare of like oh but because they're getting better in society they must be within our little like subculture or whatever of society mm-hmm. and so like we don't really need to worry about it you know gay marriage that's all done like you know we're all good with that um and I feel like this report shows that like it couldn't be further from the truth. In terms of thinking about like how these things can maybe get better, could you talk to me a little bit about like what kind of a role psychology could have in that? So the kind of main um, kind of part that psychologists played is obviously the my kind of um, minority stress theory. So um, they kind of there's obviously different interpretations of this, but um, I read a really good summary of it, which is that. Um, if you are a minority in many realms of society, it elevates your distress and it also minimizing your coping resources. So the way, kind of, as I said, models that aren't built for you. So if you are experiencing, you know, poor mental health because of systemic barriers, you don't, you don't get any help. So you've, you've got it both sides. Um, and there's sort of two types of minority systems. They kind of distill um, stress. So that's the kind of more classic discrimination, the external stuff. Um, but there's this really interesting one, which I think in a weird way might be, might explain a lot more of the kind of stats that we were talking about is this proximal minority stress. So that's, you know, the negative internalized um, self-perception experience people have. And that a lot of that is so, you know, embedded in culture that it can be really hard to challenge the way that discrimination maybe, um, of course, not all the time it's visible, but maybe it's more, I guess, you can identify it a bit more and you can say, okay, that's discrimination. That's how we start. Whereas if it's you know, in yourself, it's really hard to sort of disentangle and what can you really do about it if it's so embedded in your, yeah, your self-worth, I guess. Um, I think self-worth is definitely a big part. But it's, it's, that's, you know, what, what more can you, can you do about it? Again, as I said, if the system's not built for you, what are you supposed to do? And it's, yeah, it's, it's super interesting, but yeah, very, very sad indeed to kind of, yeah, the kind of future sets. But I actually did see one recently. Um, I think it was an American book, actually, um, but I was just researching it. It was um, uh, LD. BTQ plus pocketbook of mental health and it was super super interesting it was basically designed for clinicians and parents and it was basically each chapter was a, a um one of the acronyms so like the first chapter was lesbian the second chapter was gay and it was full of like personal experiences from these people and it was like at each end of the chapter it had like here's what you should know like here's what it's like to be a trans person a queer person and I just found that was like a really good resource I think you know, a lot of these things, as you said, maybe sort of general awareness in terms of like facts has a bit, maybe the, I think the day-to-day awareness of what it's like to be an LGBTQ plus person maybe isn't, that's maybe not sort of reaching people. Um, and, you know, and that's probably where the likes of like, um, you know, mental health professionals are getting their knowledge. It's from textbooks and stuff. It's maybe not from the kind of everyday interactions, but those are actually really crucial. It's in the everyday that that's, that's how you're going to, you know, help people in the long term. So 
from what you were saying about the was it proximal stress is yeah. that what it's called mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. when you were talking about that that definitely sounded a lot like like internalized homophobia or like internalized mm-hmm. queerphobia which is I think sometimes just something that's talked about quite a lot within the queer community and something that certainly like more recently in recent years and I think is so interesting and really plays into all of this like if you've internalized all these ideas so deeply even if even when like you know the very like small things happen like if you're like seeking out healthcare or support for your mental health like if you are not treated as you should be and as you deserve to be if you've already got this feeling that like actually you probably you've got this proximal stress or like this internalized homophobia or internalized queerphobia, then I feel like it must be, you must quite quickly get into a cycle of like mm, people yeah. being treated poorly. And then, cause that was one of the things that really struck me when I was also reading about it was that you've got this whole group of people, the queer community who statistically are more likely to need mental health services. And then you've got mental health services that in no way work for these people. Mm. And not only do they not work for them, like people don't just go like into these services and then come out with a neutral experience. Like they go into them and likely have really quite at times damaging and traumatic Mm. experiences. And so come out not only with their mental health in a worse place than it was before, but also with a realization that like the men, they, you know, feeling like there isn't a place where they can seek help. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very helpless. And I think that would play into, you know, the kind of, as I said, the, this is the, that people don't feel that they're worth worth anything, worth living. That that must play into it if you if you really can't find a next step or like. And I think I read I read a really interesting um, paper uh, by I'm gonna get the name wrong. I think it was Valero et al. And it was a 2020 paper. And it was about um, the impact of COVID-19 on LGBTQ plus mental health. And it wasn't an actual study. It was more like a review paper. But they they talked a lot about um, you know. LGBTQ plus students and they said that you know I've heard this a lot um, and I actually touched on it on my podcast with Val about um, when LGBT youths go to university they almost experience a kind of second puberty in that they are more able to come out they're more able to you know have that kind of aspect of the chosen family and you know have a bit of um I get more self-affirmation I think is probably the best word but um this paper argues that with COVID they don't get that you know they're stuck in maybe homes that don't want them and don't accept them they can you know seek out their friends for coping or people who'd understand them and you know a virtual chosen family can only do so much kind of thing and then yeah they sort of said like that's that should really be a kind of future priority for mental health in terms of kind of post-corona recoveries that these people who would normally experience that kind of the self-affirmation the self-discovery and that that safeness I think I think it seems really obvious but I think a lot of what we're touching on the kind of underlying theme is that I don't think actually in terms of what would help LGBT people's mental health is just to be like safe and wanted like they're not asking for necessarily specialist services although they might be useful they just want the same you know they just want to feel wanted and safe and secure and we're just not meeting that so no wonder they're struggling. Completely completely and also want services to have an understanding that those Mm. kind of things are issues in their lives and understand that those are things that they've experienced um, and actually like help them to like support them directly with that because like it there is just stuff that comes with like growing up queer or being queer that just heterosexual people just don't have and it Mm. I think that sometimes people and then that extends to like whole services just don't quite have an understanding of that um which makes it really difficult because if they don't even understand what it is that they need to like support people with then of course they're not going to be able to like support them adequately um Mm -hmm. and like you said it links back to before of it just not being seen as a priority so no one's putting the time or the resources into actually thinking how can we better support this group of people who clearly really need this support um and that we're failing um I think it's really tricky Um, and what you were saying as well about like COVID-19 I know that I've read a few things more just like um people's like personal articles etc of their experience of having like had that for like being at uni for like two years or whatever and like having like had that second puberty and like really growing into themselves and then having to like move back to a family home where maybe they're not out or maybe they are but like slightly difficult and having like spent the past year there um which would yeah yeah well what that must do to identity I can only imagine I I was really lucky in that I I 
um, have a relatively accepting family, so I, I only went home for a bit right enough, but, you know, that wasn't so much. But as I said, yeah, anecdotally, I've had that from friends, having to, you know, suddenly, and it's not, not even as if it's like they can prepare for it, they were just suddenly like back in, like that's them, like that's, and all all that, as you said, that that kind of safety and, um, you know, yeah, feeling feeling worthy of something, it just pff, gone in a second, and I can't imagine what that must have felt like. Um, completely, completely. I guess to sum up what we're trying to say is that as you've told me all about these mental health services need to take the time um see this as a priority and step up and work out how they can adequately support the queer community with their mental health needs it's been a wonderful but short yeah, conversation yeah. when I feel like there's so much we could talk about in- yeah exactly we've only got a short time to condense in yeah So um, my name is Cameron and I'm the fourth year rep of the Psychology Society and I'm here with Val, um, another psychology student in fourth year and the trans officer of GULGBTQ+. And we're going to talk about evaluating psychology in relation to um, LGBTQ+. So, um, you know, I guess, you know, we're both psychology students and I don't know about yourself, but I suppose only kind of later honours years that I really start to kind of critique and evaluate psychology as like a, a, a broad kind of field but I suppose from your kind of point of view how do you think that um psychology and I guess research in general has sort of um approached um gender identity um I think like the main like time that I first kind of realized like there's kind of an issue with the approach to like gender in psychology was like obviously looking at like evolutionary psychology because it's very like binary and it's very like stuck in like gender roles and kind of tries to use biology to explain these gender roles. Um, and it's one of those things where it's like, in my head, I was like, I don't think that's right. And like, um, as like a psychologist, obviously we've been like taking part in a lot of psychology studies. And I found like a lot of them just like don't consider non-binary people or they the way they like approach uh, like non-binary and trans people is kind of like not quite there and it's a little bit like awkward because they'll be like oh like are you a man are you a woman or are you trans and it's like that's not that it's not like three categories like that that's not kind of how it works mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um so it's like from like a personal perspective those issues have always been kind of like in the back of my mind like every time I fill in a survey I'm like oh no like what am I gonna which box am I gonna take and that kind of thing yeah, no, it's really interesting you say that because I, I feel really lucky that my um, supervisor, she said rather than do like the kind of drop down boxes, like just have an open box and like they can put whatever they like and you just have to like accept that. And I, and it's it seems really obvious, but actually, as you kind of said, it's almost so ingrained into the models that we have that like until someone sort of questions it, you, you just kind of don't think it's just very easy to just tick a box and also like people aren't tick boxes. So yeah, super interesting you see that. And I suppose moving away more from like a research side how um like I, yeah how how in terms of more um yeah I guess kind of like mental health side how how is the diagnostic landscape for especially kind of gender identity that kind of thing looked like um in psychology so like in the last couple of decades um that's like changed quite drastically um because um the diagnosis used to be like transsexualism um and now and then it became like gender identity disorder and now it's like gender dysphoria um so the movement's kind of gone more away from like um if you are transgender you have an ingrained mental illness or difficulty and now it's moved more to like these issues can be caused by being a transgender person living in like the kind of society we live in um so I think that's like quite interesting and also kind of like better for trans people mm-hmm. um, because like obviously it's not like a mental illness it is just like part of our identity and whatever um, and also like I think that will hopefully like help push treatment more towards like well-being as opposed to like how to make this person like fit into this kind of box that society's built and that kind of thing. Yeah, I guess I guess that's kind of related then to 
um, kind of like more social models, as you said, like it's not it's not that there's something inherently wrong or broken. It's that it's the world that's that's kind of the the broken end. So it's super interesting you say that. And I guess um, like as as a psychology student, um, I don't know about yourself, but um, we both have a lecture on Emily Norman is um, Dr. Emily Norman, who um, I remember so vividly in second year. She um, as part of one module, you know, talked about these kind of issues. And I think, I think especially students, you know, there's that whole thing about. Um, I remember really vividly uh, someone last year telling me that, um, especially for people who are maybe trans or have a different gender identity, that going to university and leaving their hometown is almost like a second puberty for them, and that they it's really affirming from them. And I don't know, like, how has your experience been like that or? Yeah, it was definitely like that. Like I was basically almost completely closeted back when I was like in Newcastle. Um, and then the moment I moved, I was like, I'm not even going to pretend that I'm something that I'm not anymore. Um, so like I just was out to all of my friends from the get-go and that kind of thing. Um, in uni, it was kind of more difficult because obviously there was like issues with names and like what can I put down in like uni which isn't legal like because like my legal gender hasn't changed that kind of thing mm. um and there was like I know you mentioned like uh Emily Nordman's lecture and I remember like going into it like being like oh no this is gonna be like so cisgender like it's gonna be like I was like really worried because I, that's just how I was used to mm. learning about trans issues academically I was used to sitting there like trying to zone out because it was so bad and like that was like one of the first times I was in a lecture being like oh my god people are actually listening to what we're saying um and that's like really good no definitely and I think I think that you know the the legal aspect I I personally don't know that much about um and as well you you mentioned obviously like pronouns like forgive me I my like zoom uni one doesn't automatically like it just gives me that name so usually I would put um my pronouns but I think how how do you think like university in general like approaches stuff like you know identity pronouns or just kind of gender inclusivity in general um I've had like not a bad experience with it to be honest um like before I legally changed my name I'd like said it with the uni to like this name um and that seemed like quite a straightforward option and um one of the issues is that like a lot of the systems we use aren't like all matched up so like um my canvas and Moodle like have different structures or what I don't know but like my name on one thing would be different to another so like Electra would email me and then like a different name would come up in my reply and that can cause confusion so I had to kind of like email all my lecturers being like hey by the way um I'm trans um and this is I use these names and pronouns and this is why this is confusing so it wasn't too bad like I've heard people in other unis having worse experiences so I'm quite glad about that um, mm. But I do think more can be done to, I guess, like promote lectures, like lectures more so than other people, but like to like not assume what someone's identity is by how they look. No, definitely. And we, we kind of briefly talked about it um, earlier and I'm going to get the, the name wrong, but um, you mentioned like the Institute of, oh, I can't even remember it now. I literally wrote it. It was, it was like an Institute of Sexology or something. Yeah, um, the Institute of Psychology. It does have another German name, but I'm not even gonna. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Picture it now. I was like, I'm not gonna try. Yeah. <laughs> um, because I'll just embarrass myself and probably every German person. Um, but yeah, um, I've done like a lot of research about that recently, and it's just kind of devastating. Um, because I didn't kind of, you know, there's like this assumption that like gender studies and like, you know, trans stuff. Um, is kind of a new thing but like it's really not like this the institute of sexology for people who don't know uh, was an institute which was um, opened by a guy called Magnus Hirschfeld um, who was like a gay uh, man yeah he opened it I think it was in like 1918 or something like that it was like there was a lot of research on people's sexuality like transgender issues and that kind of thing they did a lot of gender affirming surgery there and what happened was the nazis raided the libraries they took twenty thousand books from their libraries and archives and then just burnt them all 
Hirschfeld died before they could like rebuild that archive so all that kind of knowledge and information is lost. I've heard people referred to it as like the LGBTQ version of like the Library of Alexandria mm. like that's the kind of scale it was and yeah it is just kind of like frustrating that we don't like have that now so we can't be like actually we have existed for all this time and this is proof mm -hmm. because all that proof was destroyed. Yeah gosh yeah I guess yeah that as you said that kind of amount of knowledge just vanishes thin air and it's that's actually a really interesting example like I definitely saw it in passing but I guess of how you know psychology definitely exists it doesn't exist in a bubble it is you know whatever the the society at the times you know what their attitudes are that's going to inform the research and what happens to it so yeah no it's really interesting as like someone who enjoys psychological research I think things about like gender and sexuality should kind of focus as you said before on like a social aspect rather than trying to look at it from like a biological or like more scientific I guess point of view yeah great thank you so much for the time thank to speak you. to me Um, hi, I'm Valentine. I use they, them pronouns. Hi, I'm uh, Judith. I use she, they, or V pronouns, and I'm the VP treasurer of GeoLGBTQ+. Um, so today we're just going to talk about LGB inclusion um, within studies of attraction. LGB meaning lesbian, gay, and bisexual. Um, so Judith, what is your what is the current understanding of attraction uh, within the field of psychology? Well, the most most popular model uh, in of attraction in psychology has uh, five components to it, which are proximity, meaning that you are more attracted to people who are closer to you, similarity, people who are more similar to you, reciprocity, people who also like you, physical attractiveness, and familiarity, which is people you see more often. And that's the that's the most common model. That's the a model that has a lot of studies that validate it, that support it. And uh, it sounds very, very good and very inclusive and like it can be applied to about everyone, but it does have some issues because attraction historically in psychology has mainly been studied in cisgender, white, heterosexual uh, participants. Right, okay. So how do you think using those participants, how do you think that affects the understanding or representation of like lesbian, gay and bisexual attraction? I think it complicates it a bit because especially if you look at the physical attractiveness uh, part of it, the studies that look specifically at who is attractive or what people find attractive focus on very binary and uh, gendered things where women would be attracted to masculine men and men would be attracted to feminine women. And then the question poses itself of how does it work when somebody is attracted to their own gender? Would they be attracted to the femininity or the masculinity of it or neither or both? And there is very few research uh, on that, which uh, does contradict itself uh, slightly. The results are more consistent uh, in studies about gay men uh, who overall seem to prefer uh, masculinity, but there is a lot of um, discrepancies. Uh, in, in results about uh, lesbians who seem to have no preference or prefer feminine uh, women or masculine women, and there is no general understanding of it. Okay, so how do you think like those kind of results chalk up to your own experiences or experiences of people you know within the LGBT community? I think what science says and the papers I have read, uh, the studies I have looked into, are very different from conversations I have with my friends or what I experience myself. I would say that people do not seem to be able to determine what uh, lesbian women prefer is accurate because I have seen a lot of diversity in that. But looking at bisexual people or gay men, there seems to be a lot of diversity and what those people prefer as well. Uh, and that is not represented at all in the, the studies uh, that exist. 
Okay, yeah, that's really interesting. So I guess one thing we need to like talk about is the what kind of drives um, studies of attraction, especially in LGBT, lesbian, gay, and bisexual people. Um, so what kind of uh, justifications do you think they have or what kind of uh, motivations do you think uh, researchers have in that kind of field? Um, I think some of it is uh, very good and it's about wanting to include and understand attraction better. And so in order to attract, to understand the whole phenomenon of attraction, you do need to look at all the various ways and combinations of attractions. And that is a part of it, but it's a relatively small part of it. And a lot of studies that uh, look at attraction and LGB people actually focus not on how they experience attraction, but on how people are attracted to them. So there are a lot of studies that are about why do LGB people exist? What, what is the evolutionary benefit of being attracted to your own gender? And that's, that breaks down very quickly when you look at how the studies were, uh, were conducted. The, the, the motivation behind behind that seems dodgy and very conservative. So I feel like us as uh, like LGBT people, we can kind of immediately see the issues of like, um, you know, trying to prove the LGB attraction exists. Um, but like for someone who doesn't have that kind of personal experience, do you think you could like explain a little bit why that is actually an issue? There is um, a study that has marked me very much. I read it a couple of years ago, but it has stayed with me and I, I still cannot believe it. It was conducted by three men who focused on why lesbians and bi women exist. And their conclusions were that it's because that makes them more attractive to men because they're less likely to cheat uh, and well not less likely to cheat but if they cheat they're less likely to bear the offspring on of uh, another man and that sounds incredibly incredibly dehumanizing and um can you can you imagine having a study that focuses on what would happen if you cheated and only consider your attraction and who you might want to date as determining what what children you're going to have or whose children you're going to have yeah okay I think that explains it a lot um and I did have to hold back from screaming a little bit there you know you brought up some really interesting points um so thank you very much Judith I think we'll end it there thank you Val I'm Judith. Hi, I am Emerus or Callion. I am the Asexual and Romantic Officer for GOLGBTQ+. And my pronouns are they, them, he, him, or season. Uh, so Emerus is going to uh, talk to us about the history of asexual uh, research on asexuality and um, what it currently is like. So maybe we can start things off uh, by defining asexuality. And in well, in most simplest terms, asexuality is just the lack of sexual attraction or less of asexuality is a spectrum, just like aromanticism as well. It's it can be defined as a complete lack of sexual attraction, or maybe someone feels less sexual attraction than normal, or it can also fluctuate as so sometimes feel more and sometimes feel less of it. But it's basically just to some degree a lack of sexual attraction. And that does not include a lack of sexual desire because they are two separate things and it also does not at all um, mean a lack of romantic attraction either because that is aromanticism and um, it gets confused a lot some people think oh all asexual people are romantic but that is not necessarily the case. Oh, that sounds very clear. And uh, thank you for this little uh, introduction. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the historical approach to studying asexuality. Well, the problem is with this is it's still a fairly new concept. I'm sure asexuality, is, as all the other kind of orientations have existed for, you know, hundreds and thousands of years, but there's no historical records of it that we can really find. There's no, you know, we don't know anything about ancient Romans being ace like they were gay. But 
so the only research we have about asexuality is from only the last hundred years or so. So unfortunately, uh, that makes it quite difficult to really research it because there's just not much there. But there has been research and there has been actually pretty, you know, good research in that the historical figures have defined it as basically what it is, slightly different terms, slightly different definitions, but it has been recognized as a lack of sexual attraction. Um, so, for example, the German sexologist Magnus Hirschfeld, who's well known for his Institute of Sexology in Berlin, also um, he mentions in a pamphlet um, people who do not experience sexual desire. So it is slightly different definition, but it is quite clear that he was referring to asexuality. And then we also have Kinsey, the guy who created the famous Kinsey scale, did add later on in um, sort of 19, late 1940s, early 50s, a separate X category for people who do not experience sexual attraction. And it has been mentioned many times since then. I think asexuality really sort of, I think came into the public light more in the 70s. You know, there was an asexual manifesto written in the early 70s. Cool, and that actually sounds really cool. Um, and uh, how does that compare to current research? There is, it's quite, it's quite difficult to find research on, on asexuality because you type asexual into like Google Scholar or something and it gives you stuff about plants, which is, <laughs> that's all, also a common misconception. I tell someone I'm asexual, they're like, oh, so you're a plant. I'm like, do I look like a plant to you? <laughs> but um, no, I found some actually pretty good papers on asexuality when I looked it up. They had defined it correctly as a, a lack of sexual attraction, and they acknowledged the fact that not all asexual people are necessarily aromantic as well, and not all asexual people don't necessarily want anything to do with sexual activity. And, and there's a couple of good papers I found that really stressed the importance of not pathologizing asexuality, because that is something that does happen in science and also like in therapy a lot as well. I think um, both the ICD and the DSM, I suppose, have their own versions of there's some disorders known as like hyperactive sexual desire disorder, for example, which is an issue on its own, I think, but a lot of asexual people get sort of misdiagnosed with that. And because I think a lot of people don't understand exactly what asexuality is, like we don't have enough LGBT education as there is, but there's so little about it. No one ever tells you about asexuality. It's something you have to look up for yourself. So a lot of people don't understand what it is, and then, then they will just, you know, misdiagnose it as something else, which is a big problem. But as I did mention, people are, I think, becoming a bit more aware of it and, you know, are making sure to be more conscientious in their research, which is a really good thing to see. <laughs> I, uh, I definitely agree. That's uh, really good to hear. And I was wondering, going forward, what would you like to see in research on asexuality or uh, surrounding asexual people? I think more of more of the, those things that I found where it acknowledges the differences in asexuality, acknowledges that it's not, it's not a disorder, that it's not you know, one sort of thing that it's acknowledged that asexuality is a spectrum and every asexual person has different experiences with being asexual. And I think it'd also be good to see more research about aromanticism as well, because obviously as I said, a lot of people confuse the two. So it would be good to, to study both of them, I think. But I think it's going in a good direction as it is. That's, that's really cool. Uh, well, uh, I think that's a... Uh... Nice little conclusion. Thank you so much for uh, talking to us about this. Hi, my name is Emrys and we are going to be talking about queer joy and the positive representation of LGBT plus experiences in psychology. And I, my name is Ellie. I'm very excited to be talking about it. All right. So first, could you just explain what is positive psychology? Positive psychology is kind of the contrasting view to what historically psychology is focused on, um, kind of deficit, distress and disaster. Positive psychology is kind of the movement to kind of flip that on its head and study the human strengths and virtues and the ability to thrive in response to adversity. Um, and how, how has this been applied to the LGBT plus community so far? Very recently, it's been kind of pointed out that a lot of the research that we have on LGBTQ plus communities 
focuses on this kind of distress and disaster and like even deficit until recently in that way kind of said what why is it so hard to be part to to be lgbtq plus and not really explored past that the way that in which uh positive psychology has been applied to looking at lgbt the lgbtq plus community is to look at not only the strengths and the virtues that are within individuals within the LGBTQ plus community, but within the community itself and how we can use that to uh, support individuals and also the community and fully understand, understand these two groups. The reason to do that is so that we could better support um, people from the LGBTQ plus community. Um, and so that we can overturn the idea that being LGBTQ plus is inherently problematic and as it's historically been pathologized. Yeah. Pathologized, that's very much something that we're trying to do. And therefore, looking at the LGBTQ plus community through the lens of positive psychology is very necessary um, in order to do that more widely. Um, so one of the uh, one of the groundworks. Um, for looking at the LGBTQ plus community through positive psychology um, was done by Vaughan and Rodriguez within 2014. And what they've done is they've applied, um, they've looked at uh, LGBTQ plus um, research through the lens of the three pillars of positive psychology and said, um, what themes within this research that we've got already kind of apply to these three pillars and what they identified was a theme of positive subjective experiences and in that they included resilience and uh, stress-related growth. So resilience they defined as individual protective outcomes that serve to increase the chances of positive outcomes later. It's basically the resources that a person or a community might have to help them overcome difficulties at that present moment but also in the future and stress related growth is basically the the way that someone might be able to grow after adversity or a community might be able to um, grow after adversity in response to difficulty rather than be beaten down by it and they, they identified that these two themes are very strong within the research um, that already exists around the LGBTQ community. The, what they also found was that there were also themes of different strengths, character strengths and virtues within the LGBTQ plus community. And these included creativity, bravery, authenticity and zest, love and social intelligence and citizenship and fairness. And they also identified a third pillar of positive institutions and organizations so this would be the communities that um, lgbtq plus people create and organize within themselves so social institutions that foster a positive sense of positive subjective experiences and help in the development of the character strengths associated with being lgbtq plus so foster the creativity and foster the bravery, authenticity, and zest, and love, and social intelligence, and all that. Uh, and those can be community groups, those can be schools, those can be faith communities, but also institutions such as marriage. And these institutions foster a sense of social support, belongingness, and identity ship. What more do you think can be done in this area to encourage more positive research? Well, because this new research is quite new. We often we have to understand how we then can implement it practically, and what's what's at the moment stopping people from applying it practically. I think when we were talking about this beforehand, we were talking about how in th some therapeutic sessions, when being LGBTQ was brought up in for some people, it's yeah. it's often where their issues are kind of housed by psychology, and that's kind of labelled as the reason why someone might be experiencing various issues but actually this research suggests that it might be what's protecting them from further negative outcomes and we need yeah. to understand how we can then bolster these resources in order to support someone later 
Yeah. Uh, it's not fully understood by psychology at the moment. We also need to understand how this then works within the intersections of our community. So for people of colour, for disabled people, for for every intersection. That works uh, just starting. There's um, uh, Gabriel and Anderson uh, in tw 2021 kind of made a, a measure that looked at queer people of colour's identity affirmation. And they suggested that identity, like because we know that it intersections of identities, particularly mm -hmm. like race and being LGBTQ+, the sum of those identities don't necessarily make up what's experienced at the intersection. It's important to, to kind of explore the, the intersection independently, mm -hmm. informed by what's done in, uh, independently. Previous research had found... So they were discussing that with positive identity having already been linked to resilience and stress-related growth and subsequently positive mental health outcomes, it was really important to have a scale that addressed queer uh, peoples of colour identity affirmation. It, it's in order to get an accurate investigation of this construct. And because this has only been done in like 2021, I think that kind of just shows like how much more work that we've got to do mm. later in this area because the positive psychology and the positive aspects of being a person of colour and queer is not necessarily equal to what we already understand about being LGBTQ+. Yeah. Thank you so much to all of the wonderful GU PsychSoc and GU LGBTQ plus committee members who took part, shared their thoughts and shared their research for this LGBTQ plus History Month special. If you're interested, you can find the links to the papers and the resources mentioned in the conversations in the Google Doc in the description, along with some very helpful resources to learn more about the topics covered today. LGBTQ plus are hosting a selection of LGBT History Month events tomorrow in the context of Queer Fest. Uh, so that's on the Saturday, the 27th of February from 10 a.m. to 4.45 p.m. for the daytime events. You can check out the events uh, on our Facebook and Instagram for more uh, details and for the events link. Uh, we'll have a yoga workshop, LGBTQ plus history panel, LGBTQ plus BAME panel, performance skills workshop with SAG and an LGBTQ plus disability panel. We'll also have performances in the evening from 7 p.m. onward. Until next time, we will say goodbye using Polari. We've had a wonderful time talking into your ears. Good night, fabulous listeners. We've had a Bonnaroo time screeching into your Aunt Nels. Bonanochi, fabulosa listeners. This episode was written, hosted and recorded over Zoom by Judith Nev, Ellie Brownlee, Amelia Hilton, Ali Lloyd, Cameron McAllister, Valentine Conlon, Emerus Woodward, Teresa Vallover, Paul Skinner and Emily Tunstall. The Brainscape podcast was created by Amelia Hilton. This episode was edited and produced by Amelia Hilton with original music by Jack Harding. Find the Google Doc with links to resources in the description and check out GU LGBTQ Plus and GU PsychSoc on Facebook and Instagram.